All right, well, uh, looks like we have a good group here this morning on a uh, beautiful Sunday morning. Might get a few more uh, rain clouds floating over. That would be very nice. We could certainly use it, that's for sure. Uh, I think we have one spot open up here. Um, and then uh, start pulling the chairs out and putting them along the sides. So this, I believe, is... Uh, uh, since Sean is having to adjust sound back there, I believe this is number 26 uh, in our church history series. And uh, we now get to the subject of the nature of God in the period up to and including, uh, and we'll actually go beyond uh, the Council of Nicaea, which was in... We're getting better at that. Uh, 20 years from now... Uh, That'll be the one thing that you all remember uh, from this church history series. It will be 325 AD. And uh, you may not know what the significance of it is by then, but 20 years from now, you will still remember there's something about 325 AD. Uh, in fact, if, if any of you have ever seen um, what's called, it used to be called the Erdman's set, it's uh, 28, 30, 38 volumes. Um, really looks incredibly impressive on your shelf because they're different colors and it just, it's just a really, really impressive thing if you can track it down on sale someplace. But um, it's the first 10 uh, volumes are called the Anti-Nicene Fathers and then the last 28 are divided into two sec sections of 14. Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers. And that terminology should make sense. Obviously, it's referring to Nicaea as the dividing line between really the what would be called the primitive church, the apostolic age, the, the, the ante before Nicene period, and then after Nicaea. Um, and, and it really is, it, it's a dividing line for many reasons, uh, theologically, but also especially um, in the relationship of church and state. Uh, Nicaea marks a watershed that will be, uh, that no one at the time, I think, could have uh, foreseen what the results of Nicaea would be as far as the relationship of church and state. Certainly nobody attending the Council of Nicaea ever dreamed of a, of a day uh, when uh, emperors would be caused to come barefoot uh, to the uh, palace of the Pope, because there was no Pope in Nicaea, uh, but come barefoot uh, to the palace of the Pope uh, to beg his forgiveness and to have what's called the interdict lifted from their, uh, their nations. The, the later popes, extremely powerful popes, uh, after 1000 AD would uh, had a, a power that they utilized called the interdict, where they could tell all of their, their bishops, their cardinals, their priests, uh, not to perform their duties in a certain country until the leadership of that country uh, came to obedience to Rome. Uh, think about what that would be like around 1100 AD. Uh, you couldn't get married. You couldn't get buried. Uh, you couldn't have your, your children baptized. Uh, when they were first born, so you, if they, and of course, uh, infant mortality is 
super high, so if you can't have your child baptized, then uh, if they die, then I, I'm not sure if they had developed exactly when the concept of limbo had uh, developed, but uh, it put huge pressure on the, uh, the people, the, uh, the secular rulers, uh, when Rome would use this power. So there was quite a while, there was quite a struggle uh, between uh, the, the state and the church at that point because it had become a state church. I mean, uh, and it, you can trace that, that genesis back to uh, Nicaea when after 250 years of persecution, you have the state and the church getting together and, and um, that's sort of the beginning. No one, like I said, no one could have seen it. But anyway, um, so Nicaea is extremely important, but we want to look at the nature of God in the Antonicene Fathers, and obviously this is an area of uh, great interest to me because uh, people often ask me, uh, doing what I do, in engaging in uh, debates and dialogues and radio programs and all sorts of things that, that I do as an apologist, what were the, the two classes uh, that you took that were the most important to you in college and being able to do what you do? And my answer has always been the same, Greek and church history. Greek and church history. Not systematic theology, uh, that's important. Um, the only reason I don't mention Hebrew is because the vast majority of objections to the Christian faith are grounded in the New Testament, and even when you look at Old Testament objections, uh, very often um, the, when the New Testament cites those texts, it's citing it from the Greek Septuagint anyways. But Hebrew is important as well. But Greek and church history. Greek because so many people uh, base their arguments upon an uh, extremely poor method of interpreting the Bible. Uh, which very often is based upon a misunderstanding of an English translation rather than the original. But the other is the fact that uh, church history leaves, uh, since we don't study it, leaves us with this huge vacuum behind us. And it's so easy uh, for people to come along and say, well, Christians haven't always believed what you believe. And so who are you uh, to, to say that, who are you, you, you to even say there is a Christian position on anything? But especially in the encounters that, uh, well, it first started with the Mormons. Uh, some of you remember back long, long, long ago uh, when I first came here. I had already written a couple books on Mormonism at that time. Just they had, uh, we are, we're already dealing with Mormonism. Actually, I think the books came out right around the time that I came here. And um, Mormons uh, teach. Uh, a very, very, very unorthodox, strange view of God, uh, fully removed from any type of historical orthodoxy. And yet they will claim that what they believe is what was taught by Christ and the apostles, but then the church went into, a, into, into apostasy. And so there hasn't been a Christian church since the time of basically the generation after the apostles uh, up until April of 1830. So... What would it matter uh, what the Council of Nicaea said? They didn't have the appropriate authority. They didn't have the priesthood authority. Uh, and they would say that the, the doctrine of the Trinity was a development of Greek, uh, Greek philosophy. Uh, in the same way, the Jehovah's Witnesses make the same argumentation. Many of them are a little bit more knowledgeable when it comes to the issue of 
early church writings, even though, as with all Jehovah's Witnesses, their knowledge is mediated to them uh, through the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And so the Watchtower Society has a long history, long history of perverting the writings of the early church fathers and presenting a very sterilized but incredibly inaccurate uh, viewpoint to their people. But they will, you know, since they trust the Watchtower implicitly, then they think, well, you know, if I read it in the Watchtower, then it must be true. Uh, they, they are not encouraged to check out <laughs> the context of the citations they're given by the Watchtower Society, that's for sure. Um, and they will say that uh, the Council of Nicaea invented the doctrine of the Trinity and, and uh, no one before that uh, believed in it and uh, the early Christians all denied the, the deity of Christ and so on and so forth. And the vast majority of Christians just are not prepared to, to interact with them. And then, of course, uh, when you get into dealing with Roman Catholicism, they want to say, see, that was us back then, so you are dependent upon us for your doctrine of God, so how can you turn around and bite the hand that feeds you? Um, and of course, oneness Pentecostals and others will say, yeah, see, the Roman Catholics are right. Um, you're, you Protestants, you, you're inconsistent because you are uh, believing what Rome taught on this doctrine, and, and they were wrong about that, just as they were wrong about so many other things that you would agree with us that they're wrong about, and it becomes a royal royal mess at times uh, to try to keep all the differing viewpoints uh, separated. You've heard me say in this class already uh, that about the only thing that I can think of where I think there is a universal testimony from the early church writings, about the only thing I can think of where they all agree is the fact there's only one true God. They're all monotheists. Um, other than that, uh, you can find somewhere, somebody somewhere uh, that had some weird belief. And of course, the farther you go in church history, the, the more literature you have, the more documentation you have, then uh, the more expressions you can find uh, at that point. And so the other, and, and the real challenge, I think, for us is if you really believe in sola scriptura, um, then how do you deal with issues such as the Council of Nicaea and the idea of creedal statements? What is the authority of a creed? If it's not scriptural, then we would say it is not theanustos, it is not God-breathed, and if it's not God-breathed, then it has to have a lesser authority, a different kind of authority than what you would find in that which is God-breathed. But the argument was that a statement that accurately represents what is in Scripture has the authority of Scripture only insofar as it is consistent with Scripture. But then that raises the issue of, well, who gets to decide what's consistent with Scripture? We just, in the opening uh, ceremony, uh, read through a section of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And interestingly enough, even that section that we just read 
um, said you can't bind on someone um, a, a belief that comes from man and not from scripture. This destroys Christian liberty and Christian conscience. Well, there are differences of opinion even amongst the people in this room as to exactly where the line has to be drawn on certain issues uh, regarding what Christian liberty should or should not include. Hopefully, we don't disagree on what the definitional doctrines of the faith would be, but I can guarantee you, uh, if you just took everybody in quote-unquote Baptist churches, now, of course, Baptist, unfortunately, um, is way too narrow a term to really give us much doctrinal consensus. Uh, simply rejecting infant baptism is, is not a, a po an overly positive uh, uh, delineator of, uh, of theological belief. And there are lots of people who call themselves Baptists that uh, have very, very wide-ranging uh, beliefs. But we have to make decisions as to what is definitional of the faith. And I've been in many a Baptist church where your specific millennial viewpoint was included in that dividing line. Um, I mean, if you want to see, if you want to see some nuclear wars, uh, theologically speaking, uh, not, not just between uh, premillennialists and everybody else, because I don't know if you've all noticed, but amillennialists tend to just sort of sit back and watch the wars. <laughs> it's just sort of like, oh, look, a fight's breaking out. <laughs> and just sort of sit back and like, uh, okay, whatever. Uh, it, it's pretty much the posties and the pre's that, you know, lob, lob, you know, in, in the amills to sort of sit there watching the stuff going over the top going, yeah, whatever, you know. Um, about the only arguments amillennials get into is, uh, so you, you describe yourself as, a, as an optimistic amillennialist. Um, <laughs> that, that's, so so, if, so if, when you think about it, you've, you've got the, if, you, if you've got the, the posties over here and the pre's over here, then the amills, if you're optimistic, you're toward the, the posties, and if you're pessimistic, you're, you're toward the, 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 the pre-millers. I, I guess that's how, how that works or something. I don't know. But um, I've been in churches, honestly, where it, it wasn't just that, but some of, the, some of the most angry exchanges I've seen between people within a camp. So within, within dispensational premillennialism, you've got, you've got the pre pre, mid, and post rapture views. And man, those folks will, will send the other people straight to the pits of hell uh, if you disagree with them on that. <coughs> and hopefully, most of us sit back and go, whoa, 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 something. Yeah, let's, be, let's be a little bit careful. I don't remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he sort of summarized the gospel there. I, I don't remember that particular uh, topic being really <clears throat> central to the definition of the gospel. But I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. And that whole area of, you know, what is, what is, what are first order definitional truths? What are second order truths that are extremely important, but upon which you're not ready to go to the point of saying this is going to cause a person to go to hell? Uh, how do we, how do we define these things? Well, 
it would seem fairly obvious um, that the nature of God is a first-order truth. But functionally today, is it? I mean, amongst Christians today, is the, the doctrine of God, the nature of God, I know historically it was a first-order, absolute definitional truth. But let's be perfectly honest with ourselves. Is it today? How many Christians um, spend almost any time at all during the course of their week contemplating the nature of God? It's sort of hard not to if you're praying. Um, it's sort of hard not to if you're reading your Bible. But going about through your daily life, uh, how, you know, uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the disconnects here, honestly, one of the disconnects here is that on the one hand, we confess that the doctrine of the Trinity is definitional of the Christian faith, and clearly, historically, we have withdrawn all fellowship from those that deny that doctrine. So we can go back to post-Reformation period, the Socinians, bad people. Uh, to, in, in our days, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, ooh, uh, go all the way back to the Council of Nicaea, kick those Arians out, etc., etc. Um, we, we, can, we can see that, um, but functionally for us today, we can make that confession, but don't we see a bit of a chasm between what we uh, profess and what we actually live. Um, for a lot of folks, obviously, once you get into liberalism, it's like, who cares? Uh, you know, let, let's all just uh, hold hands and sing kumbaya, and it doesn't really matter what you think about God. But when we look back in church history, and we look at the fights, and we look at the schisms, and a lot of us in the back of our mind go, those people, those people argued about some weird stuff. Uh, I'm not sure that it, it's worth arguing about. But might that just indicate that they had a clearer view of things back then than, than, than we do today? Or maybe they just, you know, we might say, well, we're, you know, us modern folks, we automatically know more than they did. We have computers. Um, isn't it funny with all our computers? Uh, most, most of our greatest uh, people don't produce nearly the literature that was produced by the great teachers and professors of the past. We can type a whole lot faster, but uh, it just seems like we don't say much in the process. So uh, people are willing to, you know, you look at Athanasius, he gets kicked out of his church five times after the Council of Nicaea because he won't compromise on the deity of Christ. And you go, man, uh, you know, why, why, why such dedication to these things? Why such a focus upon these things? Because today... Uh, we have people like T.D. Jakes running around. Uh, the Time Magazine identifies as, as the next Billy Graham. Leader in evangelicalism. He's not a Trinitarian, for crying out loud. I know, he went to the elephant room, and, and Mark Driscoll didn't know enough to ask him the right questions. And, and, and to those of us who know oneness Pentecostalism and know the terminology we use, we knew what he was saying. We knew what he was saying. And a couple years ago, there was a group, uh, well, you've heard of Phillips, Craig, and Dean, you know, beautiful musical singing group, and yet 
they're not Trinitarians, and uh, yet people want to be led in worship by non-Trinitarians. <laughs> you know, the, these are things that would not have made any sense whatsoever in the early church, and yet you see it all around us today. And even for, the, for those people who would never even, oh, they would never give a thought um, to a compromise on that issue. Uh, how much of that is just simply due to the fact that, well, I have my beliefs, and anybody else doesn't believe what I believe just looks weird to me, and I really don't think they're a Christian anyway. Got to be careful. Because on the one side, you've got the wishy-washy whatever goes. On the other side, you've got the old crusty, I have my beliefs and everybody else is going to hell except me anyways. And somewhere, there's got to be a place where there is a vital, uh, biblically-based, uh, clearly thought-through, um, not middle, but uh, position that eschews the legal, narrow-minded legalism of the one side and the wishy-washy anything goes of the other side. And I think the only way to really arrive at that point is to think through carefully what is taught in Scripture and what has happened in history as well. Um, let's, uh, let's I, I suppose it would be helpful if we started off by making sure that we're clear and understanding of, of where we're standing in regards to the doctrine of God today so that when we look at what people were saying in the past, we can have an understanding of how we got to where we are and also be able to see that there were people who there were people who had, how do, how do, I, how do, I, how do I put this? Um, how do you deal with people in the early church who said things about the nature of God that we simply could not accept today, but they said it before the discussion took place that actually gave enough clarification, the same clarification that we possess today. What do you do with someone like that? So, a lot of the questions that were wrestled with beginning in the second century all the way into uh, the beginning of the 5th century, a lot of those questions built upon each other. So what happens, for example, and I'm, we're going to go through this in more detail. Let me do, I'm just trying to give you some, some uh, framework to, put, to hang this stuff on. Um, big question at the Council of Nicaea is what is the relationship between the Father and the Son? The question is not monotheism. Monotheism, the belief there's only one true God, unquestioned. That's just simply bedrock. That's, that is fundamental to, to everything the Bible teaches, to everything that Christians believe. There's only one true God. Okay. But then what do you do with this revelation in Scripture that gives us three divine persons? They're distinguished from one another. The Father is never called the Son. The Son's never called the Spirit. The Spirit's never called the Father. Even in passages like John 10, 30, where, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, the verb is plural. It's I and the Father, we are one. 
So even there, the distinction is clearly made. So you have three persons, and yet each is described in fully divine terms. Jesus is called God. The Spirit's the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of Yahweh. Uh, they're all involved in creation. You, you have this body of revelation that is talking about one God and three persons described as God. But you can't believe in three gods, so what are you going to do? And Nicaea is prompted by the teachings of a fellow by the name of Arius. Arius, we are told, was a good-looking fellow, uh, tall and good looks, and he was a great singer. And he could write songs, and he started putting his theology in song. Music has always been an incredibly powerful means of communication, especially in the theological realm. It really has. That's why music is such an incredibly controversial issue uh, in church history. And why when you get to the Reformation, uh, you have many reformers that um, get rid of uh, musical instruments and so on and so forth. It's, it's, a, it's a long, assorted history uh, in, uh, in, in the history of the church. But uh, Arius comes up with the idea that there was a time when the sun was not. There is a time when the sun was not. And so he believes that the sun is the greatest, highest exalted creature. He'll even use the term God of him in a sense, but he has not eternally existed as God. And so sort of taking, remember what Origen said? Uh, what did, I, I gave you just toward the end when we were talking about Origen, I, I mentioned something that's going to come back to, to haunt us about what he said about God. But if you recall, he differentiated between the father as ha-theos, and the son is theos, without the article. So there was a, a, an, an implicit subordinationism, subordination, to subordinate someone. So Arius, Arius takes this all the way and presents to us a highly exalted Jesus, but when you, when you think about it, you have a chasm. You know, on, uh, here's, here's a chasm. And on this side is everything that is created. And on this side is the creator. And in Arius' view, Jesus is on this side of that chasm. Everything has to be on one side or the other. You can't be, there's nothing in between. Either you're the creator or you're created, one of the two. And so Arius says Jesus is created. Nicaea wasn't arguing about the biblical canon. Nicaea wasn't arguing about uh, the, the person of the Holy Spirit, the, that subject had not yet come up. Nicaea was not arguing about, well, what's the relationship of the divine and human in Christ? That comes after this. There's one thing they're talking about at Nicaea. And once that's established, and as we will see, it took a while. Anybody who thinks that, well, you have the Council of Nicaea, and then after that everyone believes. No. In fact, as we will see, for decades after Nicaea, it was Arianism that ruled and reigned, not Nicene Orthodoxy. There were, there were councils held after Nicaea that had more bishops at them than Nicaea did that contradicted Nicaea. Uh, so the idea that a lot of people have, the councils just got together and then everybody just said, yes, sir. And it's not how it worked. It's not how it worked. Uh, that may be what you read on the internet and stuff like that, but uh, that's not what you read when you actually read 
serious uh, church history. So once Nicaea says Jesus is homoousios, of the same substance as the Father, he's, not, he's on this side, not this side, um, then now the next questions that arise naturally are going to be, okay, then what's the relationship of the divine and human in Christ? Um, does, does Jesus absorb, is, is Jesus 50% man and 50% God? Um, what about the, the idea of personhood? Uh, does he have a, a complete human nature? Or does, is he just simply an animated body with God living in it? Uh, these are, obviously, these are questions that once you affirm the full deity of Christ, these are questions that are then going to come up. And the answers that are given are almost always in this form. If, if, you, if this is the truth here, okay, sometimes what you have to do is define what's in here by negating everything that's out here. So, for example, uh, the orthodox formulation of the relationship of the divine and human in Christ is called the hypostatic union. That's another thing that would, if we were to someday maybe shockingly and surprisingly have a final examination, you know, a big long thing, you know, that would just be massively huge. If that were some, you know, to happen, it would be a shocking thing, but shocking things happen in life. That would be a phrase that would undoubtedly be on it. Hypostatic union. Yeah, it would definitely be, be on a test like that. Anyway, uh, the hypostatic union uh, teaches that in Christ you have one person with two natures and that those natures are joined in that one person, but they are not intermingled or intermixed. It's not 50-50, 100-100. One person, two natures. Well, then much of the definition ends up being something along the lines of saying, well, the reason that we believe that Jesus has a human will is because if you don't have a human will, you don't have a human person. And if you don't have a human person, and you see how these are all built upon, they, they start down here, and then they build upward. If you don't have this down here, the rest of this just becomes mumbo-jumbo. It really doesn't end up having much meaning. And so a lot of the Eutychianism and Nestorianism, and we'll look, we'll look at all these, these uh, later on, but uh, a lot of these movements or heresies or things that are identified over the next hundred years or so come about from people seeking to work through these issues. Well. Let's, let's throw one more complicating factor in here. What has happened between East and West by this point in time? Uh, we, we've talked about it before. What, what's one of the dividing factors between the East and West this time? Mm, no, that's after Nicaea. That, that's, that's well after Nicaea. 
What language are they speaking in the East? Greek. Greek. What language are they speaking in the West? Latin. Which means when the people in the East and the people in the West want to be doing theological conversation, guess what? You've got to have translation. And that raises some serious problems. And in fact, historically, we look back and we go, man, if they had had Google Translate back then, we could have gotten this done a lot faster uh, than, than we did, uh, not only because of the communication speed, but there were some real issues uh, because of the fact that uh, the Greeks would use one term and the Latins might translate that Greek, Greek term by different words on their side. And it, it, did create, it did create issues as well. So there were a lot of really human factors. And guess what? There were even political factors. Yes, believe it or not, I know that some of you oh, are going to get me a towel real quick. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> that was brilliant. Thankfully, I'm wearing a black, uh, black suit, so uh, can't, see it. can't really see it. Uh, it's not as bad as when I first uh, uh, spoke at the London Tabernacle. Uh, I got soaked in a rainstorm on the way to preach, and I literally was squishing while preaching. It was great. <laughs> and if you don't know, don't know what the London Tabernacle is, that's uh, Spurgeon's church. So that was, that was one of my favorite memories of, uh, of that experience, was I was literally squishing uh, while... Uh, thank you very much. Just... Put those there, and this will—it's Arizona. It'll be dry in about 14 seconds, so uh, we'll be—we'll be good. Sorry about that. So that will definitely cause you to lose track of where. What were that? So Moses was in the bulrushes, and um, and uh, so yes, oh yes, I, I was going to sit down uh, to to point out that sadly um, there were political issues too. And one of the political issues that ends up uh, having a lot of effect, and this is where a lot of us get lost, because uh, how many of us really have almost any knowledge of what was going on in the ancient world? But Rome was crumbling. The empire uh, was, was, was contracting, was uh, dividing. Uh, the Roman government was, was dividing as well. Um, and the seat of power began to move from the west to the east. And eventually, the seat of the authority moved from Rome to Constantinople, uh, modern-day Istanbul. And uh, that ended up actually having huge theological implications as well. It had theological implications because people started appealing to the emperor and they started playing the emperor off against certain bishops, even against the Pope of Rome, once the Pope papacy really established itself. And once the emperor left Rome, there was a power vacuum. And guess who stepped into it? The Bishop of Rome. And so much of the secular authority, uh, legal authority, that becomes foundational to later Roman Catholic uh, theology really comes historically because as long as the emperor was in Rome, the bishop of Rome was you know, primarily religious in nature. Uh, once the emperor leaves, everybody turns to the only other person left, 
uh, and that's the Bishop of Rome, and all of a sudden he's wielding power that his predecessors never, never had. And of course the idea, which is very easy to, to document, is that once you and a few of your predecessors have had a power, you start looking back at all your predecessors and they always should have had that power. And so they start interpreting scripture and history as if, well, Christ established the papacy in the words of Peter, to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, but that was actually a development over time that required things in history to take place before it actually, all of a sudden somebody goes, hey, I think we've always had this power. You know, no, no, actually you didn't, but anyway. So uh, all sorts of issues that, now let's just be honest. I don't know all of you, we've got a bunch of visitors. You're very welcome, thank you for being here. Um, I think some of you are actually under the misimpression that I'm preaching today. Um, my, my Facebook note said next week. Uh, that's next week, not this week. But anyways, you'll get better preaching today uh, because I'm not preaching, I assure you of that. Um, but um, I don't know all of you, but for most of us, when someone says that there are all these external things involved in the development of theological formulations, we get nervous, uncomfortable, because theological formulations should, should be pure and they should be arrived at by holy men who are uh, great students of scripture and there should be no politics and, and nothing else involved, right? That's, that's how we'd like it to be. Um, do you remember any time in all of human history, in all of God's dealings with his people, that it's ever been that nice and clean? Uh, Moses' day. Oh, everything was great during Moses' day. Okay, not so much. Plagues, fires, locusts, you know, all sorts of, you know, ground opening up, swallowing rebel, rebels and stuff like that. Okay. Well, David, David, right? Okay, not David. Salt, no, okay, not salt. Okay, you get my point. It's always been messy. Well, the early church, they had it. Well, okay, had to get there at the Council of Nicaea, uh, Council of uh, Acts chapter 15, Council of Jerusalem, and uh, Paul has to write against super apostles and, uh, and false teachers, and, and John has to talk about the Antichrist. Yeah, it's always been fairly messy. It's always been fairly messy. And the modern mind wants to go, well, if it's been fairly messy, then no one knows what the truth is. That doesn't follow. That doesn't follow. Um, but that's what we've been sort of trained to think, is that uh, we've been trained to think uh, in, in light of scientism. And scientism says, here's, here's the absolute facts, and here's our theorems, and, and here's our axioms, and, and you just go from there. Well, it, that doesn't work in history, and it doesn't work in theology, and, and the Bible doesn't tell us that we're supposed to go that direction anyway. So, you hear these things, and what you're going to hear at your local university is this is why we understand that Christian theology is just simply the random, uh, unguided result of all these different uh, historical, political, uh, theological forces, and that's why we don't believe that it's divine revelation at all. That's what you're going to hear. And one of my concerns is when we send our young people 
into those universities without any knowledge of church history from a believing perspective, what are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to defend themselves? How are they supposed to have any basis upon which to, to even properly analyze what's being said to them by people that we send them there and say, now you listen to your professors now. Well, guess what? I, I, I might want to cover your ears, brother, but, but, but professors are just human beings. <laughs> They're just human beings. And, and I, don't, I don't know what you're going to think about this either, but in our day, there is so much specialization that, in my opinion, so many who become, can gain tremendous insight and depth and brilliance in one area, because they are not broadly trained, can become extremely imbalanced in other areas when they try to speak to those other areas. Because they have so much knowledge here, but they've never been challenged to see how, that, how knowledge is related to all these other fields. Partly because you know, there's, no, there's no place for a Renaissance man anymore. What's a Renaissance man? You ever heard that phrase? There was a day in the Renaissance, there was a time in the Renaissance where there were some people who basically possessed all human knowledge. They really did. Uh, because human knowledge wasn't that wide. <laughs> and they were brilliant, brilliant people. And so they could, they could discourse on art and culture and language and, and the sciences and medicine because it was all still very closely related. You just can't do that anymore. There's just too much data and information in any one area for anybody to be able to do that anymore. And so I have tremendous respect for scholars who recognize that, you know, someone like a Richard Dawkins, I'm sorry, having in-depth knowledge in the scientific field in the realm of genetics does not make you a historian. And most of the time when those people pretend they are, they make stupid mistakes. Same thing with when Bart Ehrman gets into philosophy. He's not a philosopher. Okay? So I have a lot of respect for people who recognize, hey, you know what? Um, I have tremendous knowledge in this area, but that makes me humble when addressing other areas. Please do not transfer my expertise that I have here to every other area. And then there are some today who recognize that. They back off, and their expertise is in seeking to, to bring uh, together the various areas of human knowledge. Uh, but that means they can't go super in-depth in any one particular area. There's just no one that can do all that kind of stuff. So it's sort of the way we've been taught is what makes us uncomfortable when we start looking at church history and realizing there's a lot of factors here. You know, I'm doing a lot of study on the Reformation right now because we're doing a Reformation tour in September and doing a lot of studying in Luther and stuff like that. There were all sorts of factors involved in Luther's life. All sorts of factors. And not all of them were, were what we would necessarily be comfortable with. And I've seen people just sort of struggling with that, with that, that lack of comfort. But we need to get past that uh, to get to the point where you can have real comfort in your faith uh, because you've sort of exposed the areas of false assumptions that you've been operating on. If you never get there, uh, then I, I don't know that we're ever really going to be in a position to very comfortably and confidently interact with the criticisms of our faith and with the culture around us. So a lot of folks have made the decision, we're not going to go there. Most churches have purposely made the decision, we're not going to go there. We're not going to address these things, we're not going to talk about these things. 
uh, because it makes too many people uncomfortable, and um, just not going to go there. I don't see that as a real possibility, but it certainly is what has happened in a lot of places. I, I don't see how going through church history really allows that for us. Uh, we, we need to deal with it as it really was. Okay? Didn't get very far in the uh, topic today, but hopefully that groundwork uh, will allow us to move a little bit quicker as we, uh, as we dive into the subject. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have, throughout history, dealt with us where we were. You have been patient. You have been long-suffering. We thank you that we can trust that you continue in that provident act even today. Be with us now as we go into worship. May everything be done to your honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.